You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, our children's ministry associate, Thomas Lister, brings a word from Exodus 14. As we listen to God's word, we pray that he would shape and conform us more into his image. Good morning. That was pretty good. I had low expectations, but y'all exceeded it. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and address something. When I woke up on Friday morning, I was having trouble getting noise to come out when I tried to talk. So if I still sound like Darth Vader, I'm sorry. But um, through, the, through prayer, lots of prayer and some good medicine, I think we're going to be okay today. So like has been said a couple times already, my name is Thomas Lister, and I am the kids associate here at Broadmoor, which means I typically work in the third floor over here with our first through fifth graders. Um, and I got to tell you that it's a little bit of a weird feeling to be up here on this stage in front of this congregation of believers. Because when I look out, I see so many faces of people who have served alongside my parents. You've taught me life group as I was growing up here. And you may have even had to discipline me from time to time. Hopefully not, but probably so. But I want you to know that I understand that I'm standing here only by the grace of God and also on the shoulders of many of you who have served faithfully here longer than I have even been alive. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for glorifying God and putting his glory on display for me as I grew up here and as I continue to grow as a believer here. All right, enough of that, hopefully. We'll see. (laughs) If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 14, and then hold a finger there or put your marker there and flip over a couple chapters to Exodus chapter 6, because that's the first place we're going to be reading together. And if you have your following Jesus Bible, Exodus 14 is on page 69. So when you heard the passage for today, you were probably thinking, hmm, that seems a bit random or out of place. And to be honest with you, the main reason I picked it was because it's one of my favorite passages. But also, it's a passage that we study a lot in kids' ministry, so I thought it would be fun for us to study it together in this room. And when I picked it, I wasn't really concerned with how it would serve as a transition out of our home series um, and into Philippians, but as God often does, he was working out those details when I don't even have the foresight to think those things through, and I'm thankful for that. And so now, I hope you're curious. I hope you're thinking, what in the world does Exodus 14 have to do with our mission and values strategy and outcomes. And to best understand that, as we do with any passage, we need to talk about context. I'm going to briefly mention a couple things about 
Exodus as a whole, and then we'll talk about the context leading up to the passage we're going to mainly study today. So we know the, the book of Exodus by the name Exodus, but to the Israelites, the book was known by a different name, and that name was Eles Shemot, or just Shemot for short. And that name comes from the first two words of the book in Hebrew, which literally mean these are the names. And I think to an ancient Hebrew mind, that name would have been so much more personal than Exodus because they would have been reminded that God knew the names of every son of Israel who had come down to Egypt and their families and names also carried a significant meaning throughout the Old Testament. And to understand a person's name was to know something about their character or their destiny. I'll give you a few examples. The name Moses means drawn out because he was literally taken out of the Nile River after his mother placed him in the, in the Nile in a basket to save him. And the name Israel means struggles with God because Jacob literally wrestled with God one night and then the nation of Israel would be constantly struggling to figure out how they're supposed to live the way God has called them to live. But there's another name that I want to mention to you, and that's the name Yahweh. God revealed himself by Yahweh for the first time to anyone when he did it to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 through the burning bush. And the name Yahweh means I am or I am the only one you need. I am the only one that's going to show up for you time and time again. And when we see it translated into English, you'll see it through the Lord, with Lord being in all caps. But when God revealed himself by the name Yahweh, he was showing his people that he wanted them to know him on a personal level. He wanted them to know that he alone is worthy to be worshipped, he alone should be feared and revered. He alone saves and he alone deserves all the glory. And for God's people to understand that, he's going to show them his glory in a mighty way. And this is where living out our mission and values and strategy comes into play. Because when we do it well, we are putting God's glory on display for our communities and for the next generation of believers here at Broadmoor, just like me. So, the Israelites that we read about today, though, they often struggled to see God's glory. God's people had once found favor in Egypt, but now they've been enslaved for over 400 years by this new regime of leaders. It was a dark time for the Israelites. And in the midst of their oppression that they were enduring, they struggled to even give God glory. So, during this time, God was raising up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And then a f that current Pharaoh died, and conditions got even worse for the Israelites. And the people began to groan, and they cried out to God for help. And this moment, I think, is the hinge point in the Exodus story. It's the moment that God had always planned to act, 
to reveal His character to His people, to save them from their slavery in Egypt, and begin leading them to their promised land. His plan was to use Moses to lead His people out of Egypt. They just needed to trust it. So now, let's look at the moment when they heard this plan for the first time. We're going to kind of jump in the middle of this passage in Exodus 6. But right before this, God tells Moses, hey, I have this word I want you to give to the people. And remember that even though I revealed myself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I waited to reveal my name to you. And this is what else I want you to tell them. So Exodus chapter 6, begin in verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Their present circumstances, the slavery that they were enduring, prevented them from even seeing rescue as a possibility. It wasn't even a possibility in their minds. And so God is about to do some extreme things in Egypt because his people need to know him and they need to know that they can trust him when he says he's going to do something. So through the ten plagues and other signs, God showed his people that he had power over creation and he had power over their circumstances. And then when Moses went and asked Pharaoh to let the pe- God's people go, his hard heart prevented him from letting the people go until that tenth and final plague. But finally, God's people were free from their slavery. But the effects of that slavery weren't completely over. And as God led his people by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, he still had another great lesson to teach his people. God's people and the Egyptians had seen Pharaoh as a sort of God for years, and so God was going to put an end to that in Exodus 14. So, with that context in mind, let's begin reading Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So back in chapter 6, 
God told his people that the events that he had orchestrated were about to take place so that they, being God's people, would come to know who he is and worship him by the name Yahweh, the one and only I am. But in chapter 14, God tells us that the Egyptians are about to have an encounter with him and learn his name. And so the Israelites who had been traveling away from Egypt after they got freedom are now told to travel back a short distance, set up camp, and you might be thinking, well, that doesn't really make sense. They're fleeing Egypt. Why are they coming back? Well, the answer is because God is passionate about his glory, and he is going to reclaim it from Pharaoh. The name Pharaoh had carried too much weight in the minds of Israel, but not for too much longer. And you, it might seem to us that God had selfish motives in bringing himself glory, but when you think about it, isn't it better for everyone to learn who Yahweh is? Because if he keeps letting them worship Pharaoh as a God, they'll never know who the one true God is. And that's why, that's why God is so passionate about his glory in the first place. He doesn't need our worship, but we need to give him glory, not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of the people around us to see who he is. And then verses 5 through 8 tell us that when Pharaoh told the Israelites that, when Pharaoh was told that the Israelites had fled, he changed his mind again. I know, shocker. Pharaoh's constantly changing his mind. But he decided that he wanted to take the Israelites back, and so he gathered his army of chariot riders and began to pursue the Israelites. And don't forget that God's purpose in these events was to regain his rightful position as God in the hearts of his people and in the minds of the Egyptians. So he hardened Pharaoh's heart once again. At different times and seasons in my life, I've struggled with this concept, the concept that God would harden people to accomplish his will. But Paul reminds us in Romans 9 that God and his plan can be trusted and that we are in no position to question how God is going to accomplish his purposes. He will have mercy on whom he wills and he will harden whom he wills. And I also want to remind you that before God ever hardened Pharaoh's heart, he knew exactly where Pharaoh stood when he told his people way back in Exodus 3 that I know that the king of Egypt will, will not let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. So with that said, let's jump into verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahirath, in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So the Egyptian army, riding on chariots, caught up with the Israelites exactly where God had told them to set up camp. Now, do you think that's a coincidence? No, I don't think so. 
They were right where God wanted them to be. And through the end of verse 10, I feel like their response is appropriate. I mean, they look up, they see an army approaching, they get afraid. I think that's okay. And then they even cry out to God. And I think that's appropriate. But as we keep reading, we'll learn that they didn't really believe that God was going to save them as he had already told them he would. Look at verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So when they saw their situation, the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army approaching on the other side, they were convinced that they were already dead. And so who do they blame? Not God, but Moses. It's Moses' fault, right? And then they get, they get snarky with him. They're like, hey, Moses, there must not have been enough graves in Egypt, so you had to bring us out here to die. And I'm sure Moses wanted to backhand somebody, but... He didn't. He kept us cool. Look at how he responds in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So the Israelites are on the verge of certain death in their own minds. Just take a second, imagine with me the chaos that had to be spreading in this moment. There's about two million of them. They have no weapons, and they see an army approaching that's either going to kill them or take them back to be in slavery. It had to be like just absolute pandemonium. And I don't know how... Moses was able to communicate with everybody at the same time, but with those sweet, calming words, Moses revealed to the Israelites God's plan of salvation for them. And with his words, he described exactly what was necessary for them to be saved. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to trust that God was going to work it out. Moses urged them to watch and see the salvation that God would work out. And then he made the bold claim that the Egyptians that they were seeing today, they would never see again. It seems like Moses knew the end of the story, though he may have been a little fuzzy on how they were going to get there. He knew that God was going to show up, and so he knew that they just needed to trust him. Through the words of Moses, God wanted his people to know that he was in complete control and that they could trust him. And I don't know about you, but those words are so comforting to me. In the midst of the most terrifying moment of their lives, Moses says, hey, God's going to work this out. Let's just watch and be quiet. God would consistently work out the physical salvation of his people throughout history. 
And then he would use that as a picture to show them and us a type of salvation that was coming in his son, Jesus. Now let's keep going in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the passage never tells us that Moses is one of those people who had cried out. But as the people's representative, he's the one that God gives his instructions to. And I don't know about to you, but to me, the instructions come across a little strange if you don't think about the end of the story. Because if I was in their position, I was, would probably be thinking, all right, God's about to give us superhuman strength and I'm going to like, start punching Egyptians in the mouth or something like that. Well, that's not what God did. He told Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea, raise his staff, and divide the sea so that the Israelites could cross on dry ground. And then it gets stranger because... God says, hey, when y'all enter the sea, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they follow you. And if I'm in Moses' position, I'm like, hold up. Um, are we supposed to be like fleeing Egypt and the Egyptians? Like if we're going to be like parting waters and stuff, let's just use the water as a partition to separate us from the Egyptians. But that's not what God did either because Yahweh sovereign God of the universe knew exactly what he was going to do to receive the glory that he deserves. So let's keep reading. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the cloud that God had used to guide his people would now become a guardian for his people and keep them safe and separated from the Egyptians all night. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So the time had finally come 
for Moses to put God's plan into action. So he raised his staff and put his hand over the sea, and God parted the sea. And then he sent an east wind to dry the ground so that the Israelites could cross the sea on dry land. And then as the Israelites entered the sea, the Egyptians followed. The very weapon that made the Egyptians one of the most feared armies of their day was the chariot. And so God was going to use that and he was going to take it from them and reclaim the glory that he deserved. And so he looked down from the pillar of cloud and he clogged the chariot wheels and God took what the Egyptians thought was their greatest weapon and used it to accomplish his purpose. And the Egyptians even realized what was happening in this moment. They cry out. They're like, hey, let's flee from here because Yahweh, and they use his name, Yahweh fights for the Israelites against us. But the Lord hadn't yet received all of the glory that he deserved. So let's keep reading. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the sea shore. So that's it. That's how God parted the Red Sea. But really, it's how God put his glory on display for his people. Not only did God let the Israelites see the Egyptians get swept up by the sea, but then that last note tells us that they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Because God wanted to remove everything that was distracting people from his glory and who he was and there's one more verse and I think that last verse is the most telling as to what happens when God's glory is revealed let's read verse 31 Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. When Israel was finally able to see God's glory on display and recognize it for what it was, they couldn't help but be in awe of him and his power. And that's what the idea for that Hebrew verb feared communicates. It's not simply that they were terrified, although I'm sure there was some of that type of fear, but it also communicates an awe, honor, and reverence in what they had just seen. 
But make sure you notice that very last statement of the chapter. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The name Pharaoh had carried too much weight among God's people. And so he showed them his glory. And when he did, the result was big. Not only were they in awe of him, but they were finally able to believe in him. Meaning they believed he was, in fact, Yahweh, the one and only I am. God could have stopped at chapter 3 and given his name, but he didn't. He gave his people his name, and then he fixed their broken spirit. He removed them from the harsh slavery that they were enduring, and he showed them his power, and he revealed to them his glory by removing everything. Removing everything that blinded them or distracted them from it. God saved the Israelites that day from a very real physical danger and a literal slavery. And he wants to save each of us too. He wants to remove everything in our lives that blinds us or distracts us from the truth that He is the one who fights for us, and He is the only one who provides salvation for us. In my life, I am often the biggest distraction to God's glory. I want to be seen as a hard worker, and like I do a good job, But usually that's not so that people will see God and know who he is. It's so that they'll see me and know my name. I'll get so caught up in doing a good job that all I can focus on is the to-do list and I'll miss what God's trying to do through the things he's given to me. And to be completely transparent with you, this even happens with the events that we do in kids' ministry here at Broadmoor. Wow Week is a prime example of that. When Wow Week is over, I have a strong urge to evaluate it based on all the things getting done and the amazing sets that were built. But I'm thankful that God knows this about me. So he reminds me that on my best day, my hard work and my good job are but filthy rags. They are useless to save not only me, but also anyone else. And then he reminds me that if we do do a wow week where people don't have an encounter with him, grow closer to him, or see his glory, then we have missed an amazing opportunity and failed to live out our purpose for being here. And then God will take it a step further and he'll put me into situations where I don't have the confidence that I can even do a good job in the first place. And that's when I'm clearly able to see his glory. It puts me in awe of him. And the result is a deep belief in him, who he is and his plan for my life. So as we get ready to move into a time of response, 
I want you to think about what things in your life are keeping you from seeing and showing God's glory. Just like the Israelites had to trust in God's plan of salvation for them by walking through the Red Sea, we have to make the decision to trust in His plan of salvation for us. And I know that many of you have already done this. God has shown you your need to be saved from your sin. And he's revealed to you that he's already done the work for you through his son, Jesus. And you have put your trust in that. And that work is done, and there's nothing that can be done to change it. But maybe you're like me, and you struggle to give God all the glory in everything that you do. So what needs to change? What needs to change so that you can more clearly see and show God's glory? Maybe you need to reconcile a broken relationship. Maybe you have some unconfessed sin in your life that's blinding you to his glory. Or it may be something a lot more straightforward, like you need to commit to our one-year goal. But others of us in this room have not made the decision to trust in God's plan of salvation for us. Meaning, you have never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And I want to ask, what is stopping you from doing so? Maybe it's that you feel like you're stuck and like God doesn't want someone like you. Or maybe it's like the opposite and you feel like you don't need God. But I want you to know that both of those are lies and that God desires for everyone to be saved, and he will save you right now today if you trust him to do it. That's all it takes. Trust in him in the work that he has accomplished through his son, Jesus. I don't know what God is putting on your heart, but this is what I do know. We've already seen today through Exodus 14 what happens when God's glory is fully on display. And so let's take this moment right now to make sure that Yahweh, sovereign God of the universe, gets all the glory that we can give him. And that includes how we respond to his word in this moment. Will you pray with me? Lord, I I confess to you that I'm not worthy to know you. I'm not worthy to see your glory, but you show it to me anyway. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us what in our lives needs to change so that we can more clearly see who you are and show the world around us who you are. I thank you that you've done all the work necessary for us, and we just have to trust in it. So Lord, for those of us in here who haven't done that yet, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that today would be the day that we put our trust in you and in your son, Jesus. I thank you for your word and how you reveal yourself to us through it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Church, would you please stand and respond?